Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. As the ninth summit of the Americas due to begin on June 6th in Los Angeles, California, the Biden administration is scrambling to clean up what might be a huge embarrassment as Mexico and other countries south of the border, including several Caribbean nations, threaten to boycott the conference. At issue is the refusal of the Biden administration to invite Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. What's going on? We speak with Guillaume Long, Senior Policy Analyst with the Center for Economic and Policy Research. And a repressive new law in Thailand threatens activities and operations of not-for-profit organizations there. We speak with Liz Hilton of the Community Women Human Rights Defender Collective in Thailand. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Ukrainian authorities say workers digging through rubble found 200 bodies in Mariupol. It's another grim discovery in the ruined port city that's seen some of the worst suffering of the three-month-old war. Ukraine's president is accusing Russia of waging total war, seeking to inflict much death and destruction as possible on the country. Vladimir Zelensky's comments were translated by Al Jazeera. They created a bloodbath and are trying to destroy everything. Everything. Everything alive. Literally. No one's destroyed Donbass in the way that the Russian troops are doing now. I'm grateful to everyone, all our warriors who hold positions and have the bravery to counterattack. The coming weeks of the war will be hard, and we need to understand this. But we've no other alternative than to fight, to fight and to win, to liberate our land and our people. Intense fighting raged today in the eastern Donbass. The region is now the Kremlin's focus after its forces failed to overrun Kiev in the early weeks of the war and were forced to withdraw and pursue more a limited objective. Ukraine's top prosecutor, Erna Venediktova, says her office is investigating 13,000 cases against Russian soldiers accused of war crimes. Speaking to the Washington Post Monday, she vowed to prosecute every single one of them. I think that it's good possibility for Russian soldiers, for Russian commanders to understand that if they decided to do such atrocities, to kill, to rape, to loot, to torture, we will find everyone, only or later, but we will identify all of you. We start to prosecute and you will will be responsible for all your atrocities. Her words come as the first successful prosecution of a Russian soldier who was sentenced to life in prison for shooting a 62-year-old civilian in the head. The 21-year-old soldier said he was following orders from his superior.
Government and corporate leaders have gathered for the World Economic Forum. The war in Ukraine is taking center stage. U.S. climate envoy John Kerry says Russia's war shouldn't deter climate goals. We should not allow a false narrative to be created that what has happened in Ukraine uh, somehow uh, obviates the need to continue forward and to accelerate even what we're trying to do to uh, address the crisis of the climate. European Union Commission President Ursula von der Leyen says Russia's war in Ukraine is pushing the EU to transition from fossil fuels. Russia makes up about a quarter of Europe's oil and gas production. But this war and this behavior we see has only strengthened Europe's resolve to get rid of Russian fossil fuel dependency rapidly. The climate cannot wait. But now, the geopolitical reasons are evident too. We have to diversify away from fossil fuels. We have set our course already towards climate neutrality. So now we must accelerate our clean energy transition. Von der Leyen says they're also working to ensure a resilience of supply chains for natural gas with other nations in the Middle East and North Africa. Energy experts argue viable alternatives are already in place, noting the cost of wind and solar have come down considerably in recent decades, while efficiencies have dramatically increased. Newer technologies still need massive investments for a just transition. President Joe Biden has warned fellow leaders of the informal Indo-Pacific Security Coalition, known as the Quad, they're navigating through a dark hour. His warning comes as Russia continues a brutal war in Ukraine, Biden called for Grado Indo-Pacific leadership in the effort to stop that war at the start of a summit today with leaders of Australia, India and Japan. Biden did not directly call out any specific nations, but his message appeared to be a nudge to India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi, with whom differences persist over how to respond to Russia. Primary elections are being held today in five U.S. states, including in Texas, where one of the last remaining anti-abortion Democrats faces the political fight of his life. Progressive Jessica Cisneros is challenging Henry Cuellar's seat in the House. And in northwest Georgia, far-right representative Marjorie Taylor Greene is expected to win re-election. The focus is also on Georgia, where two Republicans are vying for the state's governor's race. One is backed by Donald, former President Donald Trump. The other, Brian Kemp, is getting the support from former President Trump's vice president, Mike Pence. David Perdue, who Trump is backing, is also continuing the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen. I'm Christina Onestead, reporting for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. The Summit of the Americas is an international summit meeting that brings together the leaders of countries in the Organization of American States, known as the OAS. The summit uh, began December 1994. Since that time, all countries have sent representatives to every meeting except for Cuba, which was expelled from the OAS under pressure from the United States after the Cuban Revolution. Um, however, President Obama had brought uh, Cuban, Cuba back into the mix. The ninth summit of the Americas is scheduled to be held in Los Angeles June 6th 
through 10th. But controversy has broken out because the Biden administration has not invited Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. In response, Mexico and several other countries, including CARICOM, which represents the Caribbean nations, are threatening not to attend. Mexico's president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, said both in Mexico and during his recent visit to Cuba that he will not attend the summit if certain countries are excluded. And now the Biden administration, they're scrambling um, with how to resolve this crisis, which is uh, a great embarrassment to the United States. Let us go now to a clip from CNN on the situation. It was at the Summit of the Americas in Panama in 2015 that then President Barack Obama first sat down with Cuban leader Raul Castro and seemed to close a chapter of the Cold War. This is obviously a historic meeting. The summit has taken place every three years since 1994, an opportunity for the U.S. to shape policy and solidify partnerships in the region. Until 2015, communist-run Cuba was not invited. Obama said pressure from other countries in the region led to the change. In 2018, Cuba returned to the Summit of the Americas, this time in Peru. By then, the warm welcome from the U.S. had evaporated as the Trump administration reversed Obama's detente with Cuba and reimposed tough economic sanctions. Then Vice President Mike Pence called Cuba a, quote, tired communist regime and walked out on the Cuban foreign minister's rebuttal. Now there might not be an invite at all for Cuba or allies Nicaragua and Venezuela at next month's Summit of the Americas, which the U.S. is hosting in Los Angeles. The U.S. has criticized Cuba for harsh crackdown on protesters, Nicaragua for jailing scores of opponents of President Daniel Ortega, and indicted Venezuela's Nicolas Maduro on drug trafficking charges. Mexico's President Andres Manuel López Obrador, an admirer of the Cuban Revolution, said if countries are excluded, he won't attend either, instead sending other officials in his place. Que aún con las diferencias... Even with the differences, we must dialogue, all Americans. Then we are yet to resolve this issue, he says. We have a very good relationship with the government of President Biden. We want everyone to be invited. That's the position of Mexico. The Biden administration is trying to get Mexico's president back on board and quickly. It's, it's complicated, and the president of Mexico is a critical actor, uh, obviously, in terms of U.S. relations, but also in terms of the issues that the administration wants to discuss at the summit in Los Angeles, namely migration. So far, there doesn't appear to be a diplomatic breakthrough on the invite impasse. What's the president's level of optimism that Mexico will attend this summit of the Americas? And, well, uh, is, is, is the guest list finalized? Has the president the, decided who to invite? The guest list is not finalized. Hopefully that will happen soon. And I I promise once we have it, we will share it. Um, the president is optimistic. You know, we don't have anything to share at this moment. Again, once we have it, we'll be happy to share it with all of you. Leftist governments in Bolivia and Honduras have also threatened to boycott the summit. Amidst the left-wing rebellion, arch-conservative president Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil, who has strained relations with the Biden administration, reportedly might skip the summit. And Guatemala's president also said, if invited, he's not going after the U.S. placed sanctions on the country's attorney general over allegations of corruption. Behind the scenes, U.S. officials are trying to smooth out the differences and save a summit on regional unity in a region where apparently there is little to be found.
All righty, there you go. I'd like to welcome our guests to discuss all of this, break this all down for us. I'd like to welcome Guillaume Long, who is a senior policy analyst for the Center for Economic Policy Research. Prior to joining the center, he held several cabinet positions in the government of Ecuador, including Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of Culture, and Minister of Knowledge and Human Talent. Most recently, he served as Ecuador's permanent representative to the United Nations in Geneva. He's a trained historian. He has his doctorate in international politics from the University of London. His research focuses primarily on the foreign policy of Latin American states, regionalism, and integration in Latin America. Ecuadorian domestic policies and the Colombian conflict and peace process. He's led initiatives on tax havens, bilateral investment treaties, and a UN treaty on human rights and transnational corporations. Guillaume, you've been very busy, quite a lot there. Um, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you Welcome. very much for having me on the show, and uh, thanks for such a, a generous introduction. <laughs> okay, no worries. Now, the summit, you know, it's reported in the press, the mainstream press here, the summit of the Americas is in crisis. Uh, President Biden, he has sent off um, former Senator Chris Dodd, who is his special advisor uh, to the summit. And interestingly, it is the first lady, Jill Biden, who is on a, a tour now of south of the border, including Ecuador, your home country, Panama, and Costa Rica. Interestingly enough, it's not the vice president um, who is doing this, but the first lady. Um, so there's a lot at stake here. Um, tell us your thoughts on what is at stake if this isn't cleaned up, yeah. So I think it's, there are a number of things. Um, obviously the most immediate cause for the uh, potential uh, flop of the uh, Summit of the Americas is as you described well, the, uh, the non-invitation, the fact that the United States has said pretty much almost officially that it would not invite Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua to the Ninth Summit of the Americas in LA. This is kind of the, the immediate catalyst, the, 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 the sort of immediate causality. But there are a number of other uh, reasons, I think, that are uh, sort of straining the relationship between the different governments uh, of Latin America and the Biden administration. There were lots of expectations in Latin America after the election of Joe Biden, uh, the four difficult years for Latin America under the Trump administration, there were lots of expectations. And I think, uh, generally speaking, those expectations have been uh, a, a fallen short. Um, if you look at just the issue of sanctions, which is a big deal in Latin America, and those three countries that are not being invited to the summit are all countries that are victims of U.S. sanctions, what in Latin America pe people prefer to call um, coercive economic measures. Um, uh, if you look at just the issue of sanctions, the Biden administration, both during the, the presidential campaign and in the first few weeks of the, of the administration itself, had offered a review of these sanctions. Uh, you know, the idea was that there was going to be a drastic reduction, 
there was a consensus that these sanctions hadn't worked, they hadn't achieved uh, many of the US's goals, certainly hadn't achieved regime change uh, in Venezuela, so there was going to be a review. But what we have today, and this is incredible, is actually more sanctions in Latin America, in the Western Hemisphere, under the Biden administration than you had under Trump. So instead of reducing the amount of sanctions, you had immediate increase, not a very important increase, but still an increase, particularly after the protests in Cuba last year, and also after the elections in, in Nicaragua, the US piled up more sanctions than the Trump administration had without undoing any of the Trump administration sanctions. So this is just to give you a general, I mean, there are lots of other issues, but what I'm trying to say is that the fact that the US has decided to not invite uh, these three countries and not invite Cuba after Cuba having been present at the, as you said, the two prior summit of the Americas, both in Peru in 2018 and in, and in Panama in 2015, uh, this is causing some, some friction, but there are underlying causes there as well, which kind of have created uh, uncomfortable uh, relations between the Biden administration and many countries in Latin America in this last year. Yeah, and the elephant in the room also is China, isn't it? Because there is a lot of concern about U.S. influence in, in the region, which of course is still very, very substantial. But China has been making inroads um, you know, south of the border and, and including in the Caribbean region. Uh, so tell us your thoughts on this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think under Trump, things were pretty clear. You know, there was an actual official reiteration of the Monroe Doctrine. You know, they actually use those words, which are very insulting to Latin Americans. The Monroe Doctrine being the doctrine of uh, James Monroe in 1823, saying that the Americans, the Americas, sorry, were for the Americans, as in the North Americans, the US, uh, and that everybody else, all the other global pals, should stay clear of the Western Hemisphere. Um, this is sort of a, a very symbolic doctrine, which Latin Americans perceive as, as one of sort of domination, hegemony, alignment, so on and so forth. So the Trump administration actually used those words. You know, the Monroe Doctrine is back. Uh, under the Biden administration, of course, it's more diplomatic. So those words aren't really uttered. But, you know, the overall policy and the overall doctrine hasn't really changed fundamentally. Um, and, you know, we, there is... Uh, this feeling in Latin America that the Biden administration wants to lead the hemisphere into this new Cold War, be it with Russia or uh, over the longer term uh, with China, and that, you know, they're going to be able, the Biden administration, the U.S. is going to be able to, to get away with what it got away with for large chunks of the 20th century, and that the Latin American countries are just going to obey and follow obediently the leadership of the United States. I think this is wrong. I think you're seeing Latin America diversifying its relations. China is certainly uh, one of the major players that Latin Americans are diversifying their relations with. Um, the first decade and a half of the 21st century was marked by the pink tide in Latin America, so generally left of center governments that sort of uh, defended their sovereignty, diversified their relations, moved away from sort of accepting and ratifying everything that the United States wanted. Um, the last seven to eight years, there's been a conservative return in Latin America. But in the last two, three years, we're seeing a move of the pendulum to the left again, which would seem to indicate that the left, first of all, is not dead. Uh, it's coming back. Uh, and if the United States thought that, you know, 
the sort of first decade and a half when Lula and Chavez and Kirchner and Correa and Evo Morales and others were in power was just sort of a, a parenthesis that's not going to happen again, then they may need to think twice because we're seeing a changing hemisphere with more challenges to US hegemony. And this is even before Lula is uh, re-elected, as looks likely, uh, president of Brazil at the end of the year. So, you know, I think China is part of that broader picture of Latin Americans not so keen as they were 50 or 60 years ago to just toe the line of U.S. hegemony. Right. And of course, you know, China's 4.3 trillion Belt and Road Initiative, you know, having an impact uh, in the region. Uh, when I was in Guyana just a, a few years ago, I mean, there were new roads, a major, including a major highway being built, you know, as part of yeah. um, the aid and assistance uh, from China. But let's also talk a little bit about the double standard here in terms of who's invited, who's not invited. A case in point is Haiti. Uh, clearly a failed state going on now uh, in Haiti. Um, the level of, of insecurity is reported now very pretty regularly uh, in the mainstream press. And I'll have to say, for those of you who have not seen the New York Times art, um, series on Haiti, um, it's really worth a read because it, it really um, brings out some information that is not has not been regularly reported in the mainstream press, including that it seems as though um, the first democratically elected president of Haiti, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, was absolutely right in demanding uh, reparations uh, from uh, France, France that had extracted um, the uh, people who were former enslaved to pay reparations to, to France, basically for their, for their freedom. Um, but here you have a situation where the Biden administration has not excluded Haiti, given all the problems with that government, and also is busily deporting Haitians back into a country of uh, tremendous insecurity. And a lot of people are pointing out the double standard of that when the welcome mat uh, rightly has been uh, held out for <clears throat> Um, migrants from the Ukraine, while Haitians are being sent back into destitution, deep poverty, as well as facing that kind of violence. But isn't there a double standard going on here as well in terms of the invitations to the summit of the Americas? And I'm sure this is also on the mind of several of the Caribbean uh, nations that are also considering not attending. Uyam, your thoughts? Yeah, no, your points are, are very good. I mean, I think there's a general irritation in Latin America. It's not going to go away. You're going to have pendulous swings from left to right. But I think it's going to get more and more untenable for the United States to have these double standards when, you know, sort of brandishing the arguments of human rights, democracy, rule of law, those kinds of things. Because at the end of the day, that's not what it's about. The US, you know, it's about hegemony and who behaves and who doesn't. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier on in a program, you know, when, when Cuba was thrown out of the OAS in 1962, uh, based on all those same arguments that the U.S. still brandishes today, uh, actually, they added the argument of a socialist uh, system being incompatible with the inter-American system. Um, but, you know, if you, if you, a few years later, you know, Pinochet in Chile, Videla in Argentina, 
Rios Mont in Guatemala or Stresner in Paraguay, all these terrible murderous regimes were never thrown out of the OAS, right? So you have these constant double standards. You had them during the Cold War. You had them in the 60s and 70s. And unfortunately, you know, you still have them now. So you just said Haiti not being barred from attending the uh, Ninth Summit of the Americas in LA, despite the fact that, you know, you don't have a democratically elected government in Haiti. Uh, the last election was held in 2016, uh, that's uh, six years ago, um, and you were supposed to have new elections and there's a debate whether it was supposed to be in 2020 or 2021, but certainly, you know, in the best case scenario, 2021, that's a year ago, and you haven't had these elections. Um, then the uh, president uh, was assassinated, now you have a sort of de facto prime minister with still no uh, elections and no head of state because the prime minister is the head of government, a de facto head of government in this case, but not the head of state, not the president. And you know, and, and again with rampant human rights violations, accusations against the prime minister be of some kind of involvement, even with the assassination of the, of the president. This is an ongoing investigation, but the judges that have been investigated have all been fired by the prime minister, um, including the, the attorney attorney general who was who was investigating him. So, you know. Very serious things that uh, you know it, 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 that clearly demonstrate double standards in terms of who's invited and who isn't. And I would I would say it's not just Haiti. You know, historically and, and in recent history, not going back too far. You know, Colombia, which is probably one of the countries where human rights are most systematically violated, and certainly in the last few decades, in the last few years, in Latin America has always been a very close ally of the United States. In fact, the US-Colombian relationship is probably the closest alliance in the Western Hemisphere, you know, uh, certainly south of the border. Let's put it that way. You know, there is, it is probably the most intimate relationship between uh, the US and a Latin American country and between both deep states as well, the, both the US deep state and the Colombian deep state. And yet, you know, uh, Colombia is constantly heralded as a model for democracy and is, of course, going to be invited. So all this creates a certain degree of resentment. I think Latin Americans uh, are disgruntled by this. Uh, you said the Mexican president is kind of leading a charge on this, but he's not the only one. And I think even if they manage to do this damage control, which they're doing now, uh, with uh, several diplomatic missions touring the region to try and make sure people show up in LA. You know, the damage is, is done. I, I think it's, it's, it's going to be, the Biden administration is going to need a lot more to repair those relations. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, some of the measures that you referred to, these diplomatic uh, measures on the 16th, um, the Biden administration announced it was lifting some bans on travel and remittances. Uh, to Cuba that the Trump administration had uh, put back in place. And then the very next day, uh, the Biden administration said that it would ease certain of, of the Trump era sanctions against uh, Venezuelan oil. I mean, this in relation, and I, I think that the eye is also on, on Mexico. They really uh, think it's very, very important for Mexico to be there. Now, Marco Rubio in a tweet uh, seemed to imply that the Biden administration might actually change its mind and invite uh, Cuba. So who knows? I mean, they seem to be leaving the door open, saying that the invitations list, you know, isn't closed. You know, the, the press secretary, who of Haitian descent, by the way, of the Biden administration, saying the door is still open. Uh, do you think that 
without extending those invitations, you know, that given the, you know, lifting some bans on Cuba, the, you know, easing some of the sanctions against Venezuela, that that would be sufficient uh, to move uh, AMLO, the president of Mexico and other countries uh, to attend. And also, is there concern that um, one of the progressive um, um, governments in Latin America, in um, Chile, for example, uh, Boric, Boric has said that he would attend the summit, uh, Guillaume. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to, to, to know exactly who will finally attend or not. I have my doubts. I don't think AMLO necessarily, Andres Manuel López Obrador, that's the Mexican president, will attend. But, you know, I, I, it, it is, the U.S. is now uh, sort of doing this damage control um, it is working to a certain extent. For example, CARICOM has sort of softened its stance a little bit, saying that, well, maybe they will attend, uh, you know, but uh, they still look forward to uh, those three countries being able to attend. I think, in a way, this kind of Latin American pushback is already successful. I mean, you, you rightly said on the 16th and 17th of this month, the Biden administration was forced to uh, lift some of the sanctions it had offered to lift you know, or implied it would lift a year ago. Um, and they're still very superficial gestures and they're still very sort of, uh, yeah, I would say uh, cosmetic gestures, not, not with a huge impact. Although the ones in Cuba are quite important because, of course, remittances and travel are important. But every, every little bit uh, helps and every sanction, every, uh, yeah, piece of sanction that is lifted actually saves lives. People forget that in Venezuela, uh, we actually, in the, at CEPA, the Center for Economic and Policy Research, we did a study uh, showing that between 2017 and, and 2018, uh, between 30 and 40,000 people had died as a result of US sanctions in Venezuela. And that's before the bulk of uh, Trump's uh, sanctions were, were imposed, which were much, much more draconian. So we could be speaking in the hundreds of thousands. So, you know, what I think what this has demonstrated is that when there is collective action on behalf of Latin American states, when they stand in unison, when they make collective demands and they say, we're not going to accept this, you know, it forces the United States to, uh, yeah, I mean, basically give in on some fronts and to behave, I think, in my opinion, uh, more appropriately uh, towards, towards the region. So it's already uh, a small but an important victory. I think we're also seeing the Biden administration using the old, the old democratic crutch of say or blaming the Republicans, saying, you know, it's domestic politics, it's difficult for us, we have Florida, you have we have this, we have that, you know, which is the usual arguments that are presented by Democrats to kind of find excuses with Latin Americans for the lack of change. But I think those arguments are you know getting a bit thin now. And Latin Americans are kind of saying, well, we don't really want to know about your domestic politics anymore. We just we just don't think these sanctions are, are legitimate. We think they're they're causing a lot of hardship, a lot of pain. And actually, instead of resolving the issues, for example, with Venezuela and Cuba, they're polarizing more, creating more, uh, less dialogue, uh, more radicalization, and we need to put an end to them. So, I mean, we'll have to see who shows up uh, at, the, at the summit. But I think this, that with what's happened already, that's already a big story. Uh, and it's already uh, forced the Biden administration to make some important changes.
Right. Well, f- uh, finally, on the on the other side of that, uh, the Los Angeles Times, their reporting of that of the former Mexican ambassador to the U.S. Uh, said, quote unquote, in international diplomacy, you either sit at the table or you can become part of the menu. So that seems to be a, a, a little threat in a way that if you for those who don't attend the summit, um, that somehow you know, deals are going to be made that they will be excluded from. But this doesn't seem to be the driving force in terms of um, the Mexican president and others who are still uh, seem to be thus far holding firm on not attending. Just your final thoughts on all this, Guillaume. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you also mentioned the Chilean government, which I think is important because the Chilean left is sort of a very center-left, very moderate, very liberal in many aspects, and, you know, sending very strong signals that it wants a good relationship with the Biden administration that identifies with uh, the Democrats in the United States. Uh, and so, obviously, President Boric uh, has said that he would attend. He never said that he would, and he said he would attend the um, America summit. But, you know, you still have his foreign minister, who actually has been a fierce uh, critic of Nicaragua, for example, when she was uh, a commissioner at the Inter-American uh, Committee for, for, for Human Rights, uh, very, very strong critic of Venezuela and Nicaragua, but the Chilean foreign minister is still saying, you know, this is a mistake. This is isolating them. This is not helping resolve the problem. This is radicalizing them. She gave a very important interview this week criticizing this exclusion on behalf of the United States of uh, those three countries. So even uh, some of the U.S.'s allies close allies, uh, not all of them, some of them uh, are critical of this. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I would almost say the Summit of the Americas has already happened before it's happened. Uh, there's been more talk about those exclusions and about this diplomatic spat and, you know, all this sort of damage control than, you know, than, than, than there might be about the summit itself. So, so at the end of the day, I think that's what we'll remember the Knights Summit of the Americas to be about. Uh, it, was, it was about uh, that uh, dispute with uh, some Latin American countries uh, exerting some pushback and with some results, I think. Uh, that's, I think that's how we'll remember this summit, even though it hasn't happened yet. Right, the point has been made. And um, of course, in 2012, uh, Ecuadorian then President Rafael Correa, he refused to attend the sixth summit of the Americas in Colombia on the grounds that Cuba had not been invited, but then Cuba was then welcomed back, right, uh, for both the sixth, and the seventh and the eighth uh, summits held in, in Panama and, and Peru. Uh, so we'll see how all of this goes. And of course, uh, Guillaume Long, you were part of the um, the administration in uh, Ecuador and then going on with the work that you've done at the UN. So we appreciate you joining us, taking the time to join us. And we really hope to have you back as we try to keep a close eye on what's happening south of the border. Thank you so very much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. With pleasure. Thanks. All righty. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And coming up next, uh, what is going on in Thailand? A new law in Thailand threatens activities and operation of the not-for-profit organizations. There, our guest, Liz 
Hilton is waiting to speak with us. We are going to take a short station break and we'll be right back. Carinito by Los Ejos del Sol. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook. And also our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. Check out our website also at www.sotrueradio.org where we have a community calendar and several stories that we don't necessarily or can't have the time to get to on the air. Also our community calendar. And we are also heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And within the United States, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners and at Atlanta, Georgia, indeed throughout the state of Georgia. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Thailand. Uh, This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're now going to turn our attention to what is going on in Thailand, a new law that seems pretty far-reaching. I'd like to welcome our guests who will fill us in what is going on, but also how civil society is responding to this. I'd like to welcome Liz Hilton, who is with the Community Women Human Rights Defender Collective in Thailand. She has been a member of Empower, which is a Thai sex worker organization for 30 years and has been part of the founding of the um, the collective that I just mentioned, the Human Rights, Women Human Rights Defender Collective. She has been a member of the Global Women's Strike since 2015. Liz, welcome. Hello, Margaret and everybody. Lovely to be here. Yes. So, Liz, just explain to us what is this draft act on the operations of not-for-profit organizations? What is it and what is the potential impact? So this um, law is coming in under our military government. It's the not-for-profit organization bill. And basically, it give, if it is passed, it will give the state the right to close down any organization or any organizing if it's very broad, but if it is deemed a threat to national security, social harmony, or public morals. Um, so that's very wide, and it's very much dependent on who's um, who's deciding on those things. It also um, means that groups of people who are not necessarily structured as an organisation will be considered an organisation under this bill. So 10 people deciding to have a protest will be called a non-registered organisation and will be um, liable to fines and there are some prison terms for some uh, breaches of the bill as well because they'll be unregistered. So what it is and what is people are standing up against it is that it's actually a bill 
to try and further silence the population and stop us from meeting and gathering together and associating together. Um, so it's a very wide reaching bill that's unclear, unnecessary, and just further punishment uh, to the people. Right, and you are with the Community Women Human Rights Defenders mm -hmm. uh, Collective. Can you say a bit about how this um, draft act is already or could impact women in particular? Yeah, for our collective. So our collective is about 19 different sectors of community women fighting different struggles. Uh, we're uh, fighting for life and livelihood and land. And often that means fighting the state and big business, which is very dangerous in all countries. What it means for women, this act, means that the women, so for one example, a women. Um, group of women in the northeast of Thailand who have been coming together and pushing back against a gold mine that's putting cyanide and arsenic in their water. So that group would now, under their bill, could be considered an organisation. And if they are not registered, then they are committing the act of not registering, being unregistered, uh, like an unregistered organisation. Aside from that, um, their criticism and holding the state to account and expecting the state to do their duty of care, it could be seen as a threat and not for social harmony, all those things. So small groups of community women standing up to defend the family, the community and the planet can be penalised and silenced by this bill. Right. And also, you know, there is that um, conflict uh, going on in uh, Burma, Myanmar. And, uh, you know, isn't part of what some of these uh, civil society organizations doing assisting uh, refugees? Is will that is that going to be impacted also by this law? Yeah, for sure, because mm -hmm. that would be a, a threat to national security, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, mm. they can use it for everyone and they will use it for whoever they need to use it for. And I think the thing, though, is that we what we see, and I'll talk a little bit about the protests going on, but that we can see that there are people rising up everywhere against this kind of authoritarian um uh, use of the law and use of violence against us. So at the moment in Bangkok, I think it's about nine or 10 o'clock, the second day of a protest camp, so it's like an Occupy, um, where there's 65 different um, sectors have gathered about, I think there's about 1,000, more than 1,000 people who have set up camp at the front of the UN building in Bangkok. And today they attempted to march to Parliament House and they got some of the way, but not all of the way. But they were able to pressure government representatives to come down and meet them on the bridge. And the government asked for another 30 days to consider the law. And people have not responded yet that I've seen. But it can be just, it could be genuine, but it may very well be just a delay tactic Hoking people will pack up and go home. 
but people aren't going to pack up and go home until they're satisfied. The women from the slum communities in Bangkok, they're cooking the food and feeding the movement. They're mothers in the front lines everywhere, basically. And it's rainy season. So that means there's heavy rains every night. Nobody wants to be under a piece of plastic in the main streets of Bangkok of a night. No one would be there except that you have to be there. You cannot be anywhere else at the moment. Right. So really strong uh, resistance happening there. And there was a, you know, a, a coup that happened, a military coup that uh, took place in, in Thailand. And the start of this particular protest, did it coincide with the anniversary of the coup? I mean, are, are people making those kinds of uh, connections? Because I imagine this kind of uh, legislation likely has strong support from the military, Liz. Yeah, I think the, the coup anniversary, eighth year anniversary of the coup was uh, 22nd of May. The reason that people began gathering on the 23rd was in some reflection of the coup, but also that it was the first day of the opening of parliament. And so people wanted to be there on the first day in case this law went through. Um, I think too that what we're seeing everywhere, I mean, we our neighbors um, especially, but we're also seeing like from uh, the US, we can we watch the Black Lives Matter and the Poor People's Campaign rising up. There's the young people in Russia trying to push back against their government. There's Palestine, Haiti, Syria, uh, Zimbabwe, India, big and uh, Sri Lanka and then Burma right next door to us in Thailand. So at the moment, the people of Burma, there's only two sides, there's the military and the people. And so the people of Burma are being left to fight with their fingernails against the military who's being given weapons from Russia, Ukraine, China, Israel, just to name a few. So they're like state-of-the-art war weapons against people with bamboo. And still the people are rising in Burma every day. Um, I think people everywhere are saying no more dictatorships, no proxy wars like the war going on in Ukraine, no more destroying the planet. And for us as the Women's Collective, we're starting with the people who do the opposite of killing. Um, it's, it's dangerous to be everyone. I was listening to Gillam talking about double standards and you can really feel the double standards on the ground here in our region as much as in the Americas. Um, so yeah, we, we, we begin with um, the, uh, looking at the mothers and carers and trying to insist that the state has to use our money because it is our tax money, it's our money for life and not for death. Um, and we saw that when you almost had a, oh, I'm not sure where it's up to, but for the child tax credit, you had convinced your government that they should be um, investing in life, not in, in people's life from mothers on the ground. 
Right. And uh, we, we did. And we, we're still working on that and trying mm. that. But um, right now that has been blocked um, in the U.S. Senate, uh, a particular uh, one senator in particular. Also, every senator on the Republican Party side have blocked this money mm. that has lifted uh, millions of women out of poverty. And at the same time, money billions very, very quickly found uh, to send even more and more weapons uh, going to, to the Ukraine and mm-hmm. not much of that going for humanitarian assistance because, of course, people see the suffering of the people in, in the Ukraine and who are really victims of what you described as a proxy war by, by major mm-hmm. powers. Uh, but yeah. most of that is going uh, to military and there is now increasing concern about an illegal trade in weapons, right? Um, mm-hmm. Given mm-hmm. the proliferation of weapons. So a point well made there. And also a point well made with you connecting um, the people's movement against the draft laws that undermine freedom of association, a, a mouthful there, but making mm-hmm. that connection with uh, struggles um, for freedom um, mm-hmm. of people around the world. I, I did want to... Uh, uh, highlight a couple of things here. Now, you say that this protest, which is quite remarkable, you know, a thousand people, you know, out there in the night in the rain um, outside the UN building, and there is an upcoming uh, session of the UN Economic and Social Commission for Asia and the Pacific. So is the point um, choosing that UN building to try to get this known as ESCAP, try to put some pressure on them to um, raise this situation, and particularly the UN, as you say in the statement that your group has put out, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, that's something that ESCAP is supposed to concern themselves with. And clearly this particular law is in violation of several of those um, UN Sustainable Development Goals, Liz. Yeah, I think the the choice to be out the front of the UN, historically, it has been a, a place to gather that, and, and I was talking to someone from who is camped there, and she was saying to me, this way, at least the UN people have to walk through us to go to work and leave every day. Um, so although they're not the target, they will uh, be feeling some pressure and hopefully be able to um, uh, feel um, more empowered to do the right thing. Uh, because I think that the UN and several human rights groups have all, have um, condemned this draft bill, but we seem to be drowning in statements um, for Burma and statements for Thailand. There's a lot of concern and deep regret and disappointment and sometimes even as strong as condemn. But there's very little else apart from statements. Um, so, yes, they're, they're part of the target and they are part of the solution if they want to join um, for the yeah. UN people. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at those, just for information of our listeners here, um, if you look at the UN development goals, I mean, they, you know, in, on paper, as you say, um, mm. they look you know, pretty good. Things like no poverty, zero hunger is goal number one. 
and uh, two, goal three, good health and well-being, goal four, quality education, goal five, gender equality, um, six is clean water and sanitation, seven is affordable and clean energy, eight, decent work, whatever that might mean, and economic <laughs> growth, nine, industry, innovation, and infrastructure, um, 10, reduce inequalities, 11, sustainable cities and communities, 12, responsible consumption and production, 13, climate action, uh, 16, life below water, 15, life on land, 16, peace, justice, and strong institutions, 17, partnerships for the goal. So Liz, listening to that, you know, one has to scratch one's head and wonder, well, what country anywhere, right, has, yes. has reached those um, maybe that's why they're calling them uh, sustainable development goals. Yeah, they'll uh, just actually. be developed all the time. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, no one's but, kicking the goal. It's the goal's uh, wide uh, open. Nobody kicked the goal. Exactly. And in your statement, you especially highlighted um, the U.S. Sustainable Development Goal 16 for peace, justice, and strong institutions, and Goal mm -hmm. 17 as partnership uh, for goals is something that is being violated by this draft act yes. uh, on the operations of non-for-profit organizations. But listen, in, in the time, that we're, you know, we're, we're glad to have you. Usually there's a huge mm -hmm. time difference between Thailand yes. and us mm -hmm. here in Southern California. You're now um, actually, you know, traveling out of the country. So we're able to uh, speak with you at a relatively decent time. But you mentioned, um, uh, two things I think would be of, of many of great interest also to our listeners here. You talked about 19 different sectors who are part of this, um, you know, human rights defender collective network. And I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit about that, about these sectors and kind of how you've organized yourselves. And of course, the encampment that you mentioned, I mean, it brings to mind, you likely heard of the Occupy Wall Street movement that happened in yeah. the United States uh, some years back. And they held on uh, for quite a while and did have an impact because the whole thing about the 99% versus 1% became very much part of the lingua in, in the U.S. after that. And now with the Poor People's Campaign, finally kind of putting poverty more, you know, on the, um, on the agenda nationally, although they don't pay as much attention internationally as one would hope. Uh, so tell us a bit about that in terms of how you all organize yourselves, because we all can learn uh, from each other. Liz. One of the, one of the, uh, things that happened to us was with the coup. When we had a military coup, there's a lot of um, mainstream uh, professional organizations that uh, kind of went into hiding. And it gave us a chance to look around and see who is actually standing up and still prepared to fight. And so we saw that... Um, different groups, so uh, sex workers, a lot of different uh, communities fighting against um, gold mine, lingdate mine quarries, other women fighting for the land to take back from palm tree oil plantations, indigenous women uh, trying to you know, care for the forest, uh, disabled women and 
who else is in our gang? Uh, migrant women, of course, and refugee women. Um, and the women uh, from the urban slums in Bangkok and other areas of Thailand. So what we did was we just started to talk together and we could see really quickly how close our lives were and how similar our enemies were and how much strength and power we can get from being together. And so since that time, we now have about 19 sectors, as I've said, and we're in, uh, we have a thing where it's like we don't just, um, you have to speak up, stand up and show up because often showing up is very important. So we try and join each other. If someone has to go to court, we send as many people to court as we can. If someone is taking an action on their land, we send as many as we can. If we're doing something, then as many come as they can. So it's very much lending power and solidarity to each other. And so with this particular not-for-profit bill, it's how it's portrayed often in the media. It seems like a um, some law that would only uh, impact on elite NGOs. So a lot of our work around this bill has been uh, telling people that this is going to affect all of us. It's not it's not up in the cloud somewhere. It's actually going to affect all of um, people in Thailand that want to get together and do anything. Um, right. So that's been a lot of the work at the moment. But we also have longer term thing that we've been working on as part of the global women's strike is the care income. So I mentioned earlier that we think the state must use the money for life and not death. Right. So we've been working most recently on an international survey as part of the global women's strike, looking to asking mothers and asking each other and other carers what mothers want, what carers want and need, because we know that what is being offered in terms of more uh, some free childcare and more work is not necessarily what mothers want. So that survey has been a very good uh, active action tool for us to begin the conversation of what is the right. relationship of care versus the relationship of war. Well, the music is indicating that we are we are literally out of time, uh, Liz, but fascinating to hear about how you have been organizing yourselves there. Um, the speak up, stand up, show up. Absolutely love that. There's so much those of us in the global north can learn from movements in the global south. So, uh, Liz Hilton, thank you so very much for your work and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Margaret. Bye, everyone. All righty. We'd like to thank all of uh, today's guests. Our board up today, Gary Baca, our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Thank you so very much for listening. If you'd like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archives. You all, please stay well and safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.